Hey everyone, this is Jeff Shulman, and before we begin today's episode, I just want to give a call out to all of you aspiring product managers who are committed to a more inclusive future. If you've been putting in the work, you've been studying product management, interviewing for roles, and just haven't been able to land the job, the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator might be for you. Check it out. The link for the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator is in the description of this episode. And we are so grateful for our sponsors, T-Mobile and Starbucks, who enable the University of Washington to offer this program free. This 12-week program is online. Applications open June 8th. Thank you to T-Mobile and Starbucks for sponsoring this. And to all of you aspiring product managers, set your calendar and check it out. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center, and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And we are building a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community And one of the ways we do that is bring you some of the best and brightest in product management to discuss issues that are relevant to people at all levels of their career. Uh, Michelle, welcome. Yes. Gosh, it's not a day in product without some sort of like, right? Yep. (laughs) Yes. So good to have you. I was just introducing the show and, and we are telling everybody that we are talking about empowering good decision making. And this is a conversation that is going to be relevant to uh, you know ICs who want to empower other stakeholders to make good decisions, but then especially relevant to managers of product managers who really need their their own product managers to make sound decisions. So Michelle, real quickly, we'll get to know about you in just a moment, but why did you recommend uh, this topic? Why should people tune in for the next hour to empowering good decision making? It's simple. You know, I heard that it was a thing across my team that they had a lot of questions on. Simple is sometimes excellent. So uh, so we have at least one team that people have a lot of questions on as to how do we feel empowered? How do we empower others? And you might, for all of you listening, might face similar questions on the job. And Sumeya, tell us a little bit, expand upon that from your context as you've worked with a variety of companies, a variety of levels, a variety of product managers. What else is important about today's conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to decision making, there are different levels of complexity that we talk about. And there are a ton of frameworks that people are familiar with, you know, the the two-way door, one-way door, there are other more complex frameworks. But beyond just that, there is also uh, the element of experience, there is the element of product sense, intuition, there is data, there's so much that makes decision-making, a simple phrase, but a very complex endeavor. And I'm excited that we're going to break it down in ways that hopefully are going to make it more digestible, more actionable, and, you know, share some context and experiences that we've seen work. Yes, love it. And I love this conversation too, because, you know, it's so tricky as you have, as you gain years and years of experience and you could kind of spot what a good decision is. And then you want to, as the title is of this discussion, empower uh, people who are uh, newer into the field or newer into what you're doing to make good decisions. But you also 
know that sometimes their instincts are not as refined or developed as time as yours. So how do you balance that? That's what we're going to discuss today. And first, Michelle, uh, thanks for joining us. Let's now get to know a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about your journey in product management. Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm a senior director at T-Mobile, and I run uh, a product team there that's responsible for core wireless products. So my career actually didn't start off in product management. I worked in engineering and technology and even a data science for a bit, but but I've spent the last several years leading our product management team. All right. And Michelle, I'm also going to give a quick plug. I am so grateful that uh, your team and and organization at T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first PM role. It's such a joy to be able to collaborate with a fantastic company like T-Mobile to build a more inclusive future. And so thank you for that. I think the joy has been all ours. Like in the And since we became a sponsor, the feedback I've been getting from the team about what it's like to be a sponsor and how you've been infusing this IPMA culture into our organization, I, th- you know, I think we, we're getting the most out of it. So thank you. Oh, wow. That's great to hear. And uh, for all of you out there listening, replay Michelle's words right there. Yeah, sponsors. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. All right. So speaking of inclusive, this is where I think empowering good decision making is critical because it could feel if you don't have a rhyme or reason as to why you don't listen to somebody or follow what they're recommending, people could feel that it's because of their demographic attributes, because of their socioeconomic status, because of where they went to school, all sorts of reasons that could then make demotivate them and make them feel like they're not included, like they don't belong. And it could it could have some disastrous consequences to, to your talent retention. So Samea, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you're doing to help people feel included, even if their final say or recommendation is not what gets the decision that gets made? Yeah, I think ultimately, most people just want to be able to have a say and want to contribute and they want to contribute in a meaningful way. So they need to understand that their contribution is going to do X, Y, Z towards making this decision. So even if they are not the ones who are ultimately making the final decision, they're contributing to it either by providing some data or running a quick experiment or talking to certain customers. Whatever they're, they're doing needs to be, we as leaders, we need to be able to tie it for them. And even if we don't know what they need to be doing, we might want to ask them that question. How can you contribute in a meaningful way to making this decision? What are the things, the insights that you have that other people on the team might not have? And so I always start a lot of these conversations by truly asking questions of how might you be able to contribute here? And if the person is stuck and is not able to provide a lot of information, they're usually going to, let's say, in a lot of cases, I get a high level answer, but they get a sen- they have a sense of where they want to go. And sometimes I also have insights into their strengths and I can direct them just through some of the questions I ask. So that's uh, definitely one tactic I think about a lot. Now, so just uh, to be aware. So Michelle, what do you think has worked well as you're trying to include people in the decision and have them feel valued as decisions get made? I think it's worked well to include them where some of the decisions are made. I mean, I think one of the things when you think about product management is decisions are made at different levels. And sometimes there's not a really good understanding as to why we made that decision, right? If they weren't included in the room, if it was executives or those pieces. So I think it's really important that people who are growing and developing in their career have a front row seat 
to hear and listen to the discourse of leaders who are making those making decisions that impact their products. All right. So now I've got a whole bunch of questions, but I feel like we've got two senior leaders in product that uh, you've been doing this for a while now. And so my I want to see if you have questions for each other. Like, what is when the theory hits practice and you're out there doing it? What are some of the challenges or questions that you want another perspective on? Sure, I'll start, Michelle. If you're open to that, sure. All right. So one of the the things that I hear some PMs do is, you know, when they're getting pushback on, let's say, a decision that was made that they don't really understand or they weren't there and understand how we got to it. When they get pushed back on it, let's say by other people on the team, a lot of the refrains I hear are, oh, it's not up to me. That was decided by leadership, et cetera. What are some of the ways you coach people to maybe respond differently? Mm. Okay, I have a two-part answer on that. That's a great question. I think one is we, as product leaders or product you know, ICs, junior and your career, any product manager needs to understand decision-making, right? And be able to voice whether, you know, they didn't make the final decision or not. It's incumbent upon them to understand what the rationale was for that decision. And so if they don't, I think that's something they, they need to voice pretty quickly, right? So that they can say, hey, here's how, maybe I didn't make the decision, but the response would be, hey, here's what I understand is the reason we made this decision. So I think that's one thing I would coach. And then the second thing I would answer is, I think sometimes product managers don't love the decisions that sometimes are made outside of their product if they're not, for whatever reason. I think we all get into that that role. And so I also have a rule of threes, which is if we really don't like the decision and we had the meeting, you know, it's, it's you get three, op- you get, you have, that's the first moment you voiced your opinion. And then I also am like, pick two other times or you approach the problem differently. You either pick up the phone, you talk to somebody, you hear their perspective on it, or you represent. But after three times, it's sort of done. I love that. This rule of threes sounds like a really good one. One of the things that you know I think is a built-in assumption here to the rule of threes is there is psychological safety in the organization. Um, and sometimes the, the questions that come up are, let's say, from a PM who has been in the job for a year or brand new, and the decision was made at, yeah, let's say, senior director or the VP level. Are there things that leaders can do to make that three opportunity rule work for everyone? I think definitely. I think one of the things I, I believe and you know, I think we can do as leaders is really remind our team that, hey, I don't know more than you, right? The person who's sometimes working on the products and living the day in, day out actually have the most amount of information. But what leaders do have sometimes is just more experience in decision-making and taking in more external factors. So I think I, I also think as leaders, we need to really challenge our team that if they don't agree or they're really concerned about some of the decision-making, that they do speak up. It's, it's imperative that they speak up. Now, at the end of the day, if their opinion is well understood, but there are other extenuating factors that just result in a different decision, then we have that conversation. But cultures don't work when it's very hierarchical and there's just top-down decision-making. A decision can be made, but we also need to create an environment that it can be challenged if it's not sound or understood. 
All right, you're getting some love from Sumea for those who can't uh, see it, the heart icon there. So, Michelle, do you have any questions for Sumea? Any either controversial opinions or, or challenges that you wanted to get an extra perspective on? I would love this one. So, I think the nature of kind of my career and our team is we've always, you know, kind of worked in large companies, and they're highly matrixed, and there's a lot at stake, right? Hundreds of million, you know, hundred million customers, like a big brand. There's all of this at stake, and so one thing that I kind of struggle with is you know you set your product managers up to be the CEO of their product. You're like you're the most empowered, you're the most in charge, you know the most. But it's sort of also unfortunately in some of these big matrix organizations not all the decisions sit with the product managers. And so something I've struggled with is like Samaya, how do you sort of give a framework for teams so that they can better understand where different types of decisions are made and still feel empowered? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the trick, right? I think I think about this in a couple of ways. So definitely in a large organization, I think the PM probably has ownership over 50% of the decision making, but they can increase that over time by a lot if they do two things. One, they define communication pathways that gets to the decision makers throughout the year. So let's say a lot of the decisions about your product are being made by a VP. So how do you make sure that the data that you think is most important that you yourself use to base some, some of your decisions on is something that they're aware of. Now, we're not talking about the lowest level of minutiae or details, but periodically, whether it's monthly or quarterly, how do you frame some of your communications in a way that thinks about the long term? So we're talking about long game here. And then the second part is leadership has a view of the products across the board and these higher level goals. And so spend time to try to understand, for example, why retention is the number one, let's say, goal for us as a company when you think for your own product, growth is actually, or net new growth is more important than retention. Like, how do you reconcile that? How do you understand the data across the, the board? How do you see the forest from the trees and are able to have that same lens that people in higher decision-making places are actually looking through. So those two things are important to me. Basically, one, to help you come to terms that you don't see everything, and so you can't decide on everything. And then the second one is, if you have compelling data that other reasonable people are not seeing it, how do you think over the long term to, to share it with others? I love that. Um, you are, I took some notes on that, actually. But on that, how do you, sometimes I think, sometimes we all make decisions in our career. We're like, oh yeah, I'm going to make this decision, do this. And actually has a lot bigger impact than maybe we anticipated. And maybe in that as product people, we needed to bring some more people in, right? You know, you're, you feel so empowered that maybe you're making some pretty big decisions. How do you kind of coach teams on that and also have them feel kind of empowered and optimistic about their role? Mm, I think you're more likely to make some mistakes around that than uh, avoid them completely, frankly, because a lot of times what happens in those situations is you don't even realize 
that you are making that kind of decision. So when we started, I talked a little bit about complexity of decisions and outcomes. And I do believe that a lot of times when we make these unintentional decisions that have higher impact than what we anticipated, it was because we just didn't know. But that still makes your question valid. So I'm starting just from the place of the didn't know part. And this is where I think the best PMs always come with a questioning mind. They're always asking questions and asking questions of all the people around them. So I encourage them to do two things. One, spend a little bit of time just understand the complexity of this decision you're making and the impact. And then beyond that, ask yourself the questions. If you are sitting, let's, you know, let's put you in the place of, let's say, the CEO even of the company. And he's mm-hmm. going to ask you questions after you've made the decisions. What is the data that you needed to have that matters? Now, this is not true for every single decision. We don't want to apply the same rigor for every decision. And so you people on the team also need to understand that there is safety in them taking certain risks that make sense if they thought them through. How do we avoid Avoid unintended impacts. I frankly have not found a, a fail-proof answer to that one, though. <laughs> I love it. What do you do, Michelle? What's your approach? Listen, I think I have. Um, I think I have some growth to do in the area. That's that's why I certainly asked. You know, I thought deeply about this. I'm like, is it? You know, is it? Is there some better communication for like what kinds of decisions are made at particular levels? You know, is there sort of a set of questions we can sort of ask ourselves to help help arrive to that conclusion on myself? Like, hey, is there a revenue impact? Um, is this going to end up in the media? Is this going to, you know, is there a series of, you know, questions we ask ourselves? Is that the right framework? Or is it, you know, or is it just a little bit more acceptance, which is, hey, we're all learning along the way. And some of these things we're going to learn in practice and some of them we're not. I love that. I think it's a. I think it's truly a mix of all three. I don't know if you saw this early in your career, but at least one of the refrains I heard from a lot of my managers were, "Is this going to be on the front page of the New York Times?" And uh. in reality, very little <laughs> makes it to the front page of the New York Times if it's not like major fraud, embezzlement, or. I don't know. Even Facebook being down for hours doesn't make it there anymore. So <laughs> the magnitude of the decision making, like 90% of the decision making that happens, I think to your point, there might be a, a little more acceptance of the outcomes when they don't go exactly as planned. Yeah, I think in today's world, though, we have a new challenge with media and how how quickly information travels that I didn't have earlier in my career, right? I had to have a reporter pick it up. Now something can go viral on Reddit and make its way to The Verge by the evening. So, you know, we live in a new environment. Yeah, that's so true. So I want to chime in with kind of a, a question. And so when you look at empowerment and the research on empowerment that goes back 30 years now to really the four dimensions of empowerment, you have to have authority to give authority to make decisions. There must be alignment of direction. There must be impact for somebody to feel empowered and they must have competency. Otherwise you're empowering the wrong person if they are not. And and it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that both of you is that a lot of the decisions are still made at the top. And so how do we 
give ourselves confidence and give the top confidence to actually empower our junior product managers to have that authority to make decisions, understand the alignment of direction, the impact of their their work and decisions, and make sure they have the competency to be worthy. Not, I don't want to say be worthy of empowerment, but whatever the right <laughs> right terminology is, it's not so uh, degrading. But you know, to actually have the competency that they're, they're the right person to empower for this type of decision. So how do we train ourselves to be willing to empower others. Uh, Sumeya or Michelle, any thoughts? I could jump in. I like how you laid that out. I wrote the notes on that. That's a pretty good job. I agree with that. I think I think where things can get more clear within organizations is just that authority. I mean, I think product managers and my organization and other organizations are very empowered to make 90% of their decisions. I think where it's the 10%, it's knowing what that 10% is and figuring out which and how we tackle that. And I think it's it's just some better understanding of where some of the, you know, where that minority of decisions is made. Oh, yeah, great point. So the devil's in the details when it comes down to that last 10% of how do I let this go or should I let it go? Sumeya, have you figured out any sort of frameworks or rules as to what types of decisions you're willing and able to empower uh, more junior people to make? So I think there are strategic decisions and then there is there are execution decisions and there are other types in between. Strategic decisions usually require multiple people to be involved. They impact more than just one feature or one customer, let's say. They require a threshold around dollar amounts. I'm using all these criteria I'm using. In different jobs, I've had to use different ones. So I was at a startup a few years ago where the most important thing for the CEO was how many clients were we impacting? If it's impacting more than one, I need to know about it. And that was his ask of all the product teams. Didn't mean necessarily that he wanted to make the decision, but he needed to know what was going on because it's mattered to, his, to the client, so it matters to him. And the reason I even added that context is... A lot of times I want to make sure the PM understand why different people, uh, let's say at a senior level or even in other product teams, need to be involved in that decision making. And sometimes it's about personal preference of, let's say, that leader. Some are more, more micromanagers than others. And yes, if someone is a micromanager, people will feel like they're not being trusted but as you work through different cultures and different environments, you'll start picking up on that, on the fact that there are certain people who need a little more detail than others. So two things to keep in mind there is always what is the personality or the actual culture within the organization that you're dealing with and, and working in? And some have expectations there around decision making. So break that down. And then the second one is understand the sphere of influence that you have and is that going to change over time as you make more good decisions are you going to be able to take on more or have you been there a while and you've been making great decisions and you have less and less authority like understand what that looks like because once you do you can address specifically what's going on i think that the concept of decision making by itself can be so big and amorphous but what is this decision-making you're interested in being involved in that you're not? Is it around go-to-market strategy? Is it around what features get built? If you break it down a little further than, you know, the big concept, then you might be able to address how you can get more of it through other work you get to do by, let's say, providing data or by talking to other people. 
Michelle, does, do you have any reactions or anything to add to what Samaya said? I think what you said that really resonated with me was just also pointing out the difference between kind of communication and informing and actually seeking approval. And I think I have an opportunity, certainly where I, in my organization and others, is just sort of clarifying what this is. Like, hey, I'm just letting you know the decision-making criteria sound, but here's what we're doing versus like, I actually think that this is a high-impact decision that we're going to need to present for a choice. I think, I think we could probably improve on the frameworks that, there. So then I have a, a question for both of you based off of what you're each saying here is, so if I know about it, then like as a leader, I just, I have an opinion and I want to like get really into the weeds. And so I think Kara's listening here. And so she could attest to this, that sometimes it's best that I just don't know about things because otherwise I just want to like get into it and it's better for me and it's better for the team. So how do you balance, first of all, am I alone in that? Like, <laughs> like once I know something, no. I just need to get into it. Okay. That's good. Thank no, you, Michelle. <laughs> So like, how do you balance that as a leader and how do you balance that as somebody uh, who's dealing with that kind of leader to know what you need to know, but like, let go what you need to let go. And yeah, any thoughts on that? That's a rough one. Michelle, I'll, I'll start and then you can piggyback if you'd like. So I think I am very good at this one only because early in my career, I had managers who were like that and I hated it so much. Just such a like a formative experience for me where I had managers who would get so involved in the how, thinking every way they know how to do something is the better way that I refrain a lot from doing that. So I use two two things. One, is there a corporate standard or a set of values that I can provide to the person that if they follow it, they're gonna be able to get their 80% on their own? And then if the answer is yes then that's great. I, I just give them that. And then two, do we have agreement on the outcome? And th when it comes to the outcome, there are parameters. You know, I want this final outcome within this date, within these kinds of parameters, whatever is important there. And then if it's early in our relationship and I'm not sure, and frankly, I don't trust the person, then I might do periodic check-ins. But one of the most important characteristics of a good manager or leader is the self-management aspect, what you know, psychology calls self-management, which is understanding the things you over-index on and then asking the person that you're subjecting to that bad characteristic, the question of, is this too much? Is this too little? What would be enough to be supportive to you on, on your journey? So I hope that that's the part that was missed. And before we get to Michelle, I just have to interject because you said that you hate managers like me. Not hate. You didn't use such a strong word, but they're very annoying. And, and maybe I am, and Kara could attest with a reaction in the, in the audience there. But I don't presume, me personally, I don't presume that my opinion is better than somebody else's. What happens to me is once I know about it, I need to then state my opinion and then hear where my opinion is wrong. And I'm always willing to let the data and the facts, or at least I think I am, uh, prove that my opinion is wrong. But then it's just, that's not what you necessarily want to do if you are working and you just want to get things done. But sometimes it's good because it brings the data out there. So how do you balance kind of getting in there, not with an opinion that you think is right, but just getting in there versus staying out? Uh, so Michelle, anything to add to getting into the weeds once you get that information versus closing your eyes and, and hoping for the best? How do you proceed on that? 
Yeah, I think, Jeff, we're, we're a lot alike in that capacity. I always say that I grew up in a big Catholic family that liked to talk about sex, religion, and politics at the dinner table. So I love nothing more than a, than a discourse on what is the best idea and, what, and what's right. But I think there's an opportunity cost as a leader to where you know, your team is going to grow and benefit from that and where they're not, right? Versus like, it's not going to change the outcome. And even though I'm curious, we need to move on. So I think it's just being a leader is a lot like also being a parent. I think you have to pick and choose where you're needed and the team needs you the most. And that's maybe where I might spend a little bit more time in the weeds just because it matters or we're working on a really problem. And then there are other areas that at that point in time are more stable. And so I don't spend as much time there. I also, as a leader, I have a leader. Like we're all not, you know, we all have a food chain. And I appreciate the variability with my own management structure. I think in in the moments that I'm in thick on a problem and with a leader that's really in my business on decisions or hard problems, those are the moments I'm challenged probably the most and I grow the most. So if it was persistent, it would be exhausting. But the occasional or the the intentional moments, I think, are, are good. I love that nuance, Michelle, because I think the difference there between uh, someone who's too much into the weeds and is being a micromanager and someone who's being uh, too much in the weeds but being supportive and being there along the way with you is, is huge. Essentially, it can end up being exactly the same activities, but it's the words that are used are different, the kind of care and you know support that's provided is a little different. At the end of the day, they might end up being exactly, when you look at them on paper, the same amount of time, the same kind of kinds of questions are being asked. It's just a language and a perception management thing that you end up all right, so now it's time for audience questions. If anybody has a question, raise your hand. We'll get you up on stage. So, And if you'd prefer, you could message me on LinkedIn and it will be anonymous. So if you want your voice included in the podcast, we'd love to have you raise your hand, share your perspective or your question here on stage. And if you want to be private, you could message me directly and I will ask it. Before, as we wait for somebody to be brave enough to bring us a new voice on stage, my next question is kind of based off of what you said, Michelle. What can a the leader do best, you know, do, do what they do best and, and get out of the way on some of the others. So going back to the research on empowering teams, there's like five things that, that you need to do as a leader. You need to share information, power, responsibility, respect, and knowledge. So those are kind of the five. And so my question for you, Michelle, is, you know, so you've got a lot of knowledge, senior director, and you're how do you share that knowledge in a way that empowers good decision-making without feeling overbearing or that you're pointing somebody to, to follow in the exact footsteps that you have? So how do you follow share that knowledge uh, delicately and effectively? When I'm being really mindful about it, I think the goal is not to come across as overbearing. And I don't think I can promise that I've never been overbearing my <laughs> feedback. But what I strive to do is make it personal. Like, I once had a decision like this and I made this choice and here's what I learned from it. Because sometimes maybe it was the right decision. I was really happy about it. And other times I was like, oh, I didn't think of this and it came in. So um, I think I try to take us out of the immediate decision and contextualize it into something else. Yeah, that sounds great. Sumeya, anything else to add to that? Anything that you do? I love what Michelle said. I think, yeah, in my better days, that's what I try to do. <laughs> and in my like I think typically what I what I default to is just ask questions. I, I never want to make a fine point of oh this was the right way, this was the wrong way. I I just wanna ask leading questions basically to try to help them then 
in a similar situation, ask those questions of themselves. All right. So I have a question here from an anonymous asker. The title of this talk is Empowering Good Decision-Making. What is your criteria for what makes decision-making good? So what? how would you describe or define good for decision-making? Who wants to take that one? I love this question. It's really very meta. <laughs> you know, I think maybe mine is a low bar, but to me, a good decision is one that we learn from. And the learning from that decision is towards either, a, you know, the outcome we had wanted or the learning that we anticipated we would be. So the reason I say it in this way is because I am a huge believer of you know, when it comes to complex, big decisions, breaking them up into smaller decisions. And sometimes the smallest decision you make or the smallest entity that you can learn from is just an experiment that's directional in nature rather than, you know, clarifying the entire outcome you're going to get to. And so to me, a good decision can be a series of decisions that gets you to the, the outcome you want and along the way, those decisions, what they have in common consistently is that you learn from them and it's not just a waste of resources or time. Michelle, anything to add to that? Or should we move on to the next question I have written sent to me? Sure, let's move on. That was a great answer, Samantha. All right. So you are trying to make a decision and you're fairly confident in it, but there is either an internal stakeholder that you is kind of blocking it in some way or your immediate manager is not necessarily in favor of it, how do you go about go around someone to get to a decision? So, Or what if you feel that you absolutely have to go around somebody to get a decision executed? Should you temper those feelings? And if not, how do you proceed? Oh, I have a really strong point of view on this. I've, I've been there before. So this is where I deploy my rule of threes. And so I also think that certain people who are the decision maker have time. I really believe there are times of day and there's a right time to ask people and a right time to have a good conversation. So I, in my own career experience, I've had a, sometimes taken a decision to a leader when they've been completely, and I didn't realize they were completely distracted, weren't paying attention, but it seemed like they were, it was kind of their end of the day. They made a decision. I was like, okay, kind of went off. And I didn't realize that they weren't really in the headspace to make that right decision. So if I don't agree with it, the decision that they make, I try them at a different time, a different, like a completely different scenario, like catch them in the morning, maybe call them on the telephone, like try to go back to the person at a different time in a different way. I never like to go around somebody without them knowing it. And so I like to use a talk track, which is like, hey, I just can't sleep at night, right? I know it may not be that big of a deal to you. I just really don't feel like this is right. And so I'd feel so much better if we could do X, Y, and Z, bring somebody in. I really think that we need to have this conversation and sort of make it personal. If it's that big of a decision that I feel that strongly about. All right. Thank you. Samay, anything to add to that? I love that answer. I think, Michelle, you made the point earlier about similar to parenting. You know, we, <laughs> this is true too for parents. Mom, can I do X, Y, Z? Depending on the time of day, my answer can be different. So great insight there. All right. This is a listening day only, it seems, but we've got a lot of questions. So I'm going to read this one straight up. It seems like both a question and an opinion all in one. So here's the question, and I'll just read it all a question and opinion, and then I just want your reactions to both. Shouldn't there be or isn't there clear decision processes within product organizations? 
especially if it's clear that junior PMs own limited decision percentage? And wouldn't the onus be on the leadership to set the decision tree and open door interactions that junior PMs need to thrive and understand their position in the decision tree clearly? Who wants to chime in on that? I'm just going to give a very short answer by saying yes, in theory, yes. But whenever you have a large product with many different PMs working on it, uh, you know, there are products, for example, that I've worked on where we have 35 PMs and all the associated engineering managers and the architects and security people and all of those. And yes, there is a decision tree and there is all kinds of process around decision making. But when it comes down to, you know, maybe I would say at least 25% of the decisions PM have to make every month they don't necessarily fall within any bucket. They they fall within another. They're slightly ambiguous. And that's good because if you have a product that's growing, you are going to ask questions that seem brand new. Yes, they can fall within a bucket or the other in retrospect, but they might seem brand new. It's, the data might seem a little different than usual. And so you want to be able to be agile, if you will, in determining how to address some of those decisions. Michelle, anything to add? I fully agree, like in theory, 100%. But I do think it's nuanced and you can't architect for every possible scenario. And then all of a sudden you make it so mathematical. Like, well, what do you mean? I made that decision. The chart said that we should and we shouldn't versus like really trying to impart like similar mindset of how we make decisions, common sense, and like bring that into the culture. So like maybe a high level framework, yes, but we, we all have to work within the gray space because we can't predict every scenario that we're going to be stacked with. So the person who asked that, feel free to follow up with a follow-up question if you have. Uh, Go ahead and write to me or let me know that uh, you got your question answered and I'll pass that along. Here's another question from somebody else, which is kind of related. How do you help your team not overthink a decision? Uh, This goes back to a little bit of what you were saying, Michelle, about, you know, is this the best use of their time? So without just doing the pithy one-way door and two-way door, sorry, if we could go deeper than that, how do you help your team not overthink a decision? I think we're also analytical as product people and we like to look at the data and we can look at the data all the time. And I think sometimes we need to just say, this is common sense. (laughs) And I know I don't want to sound like an out, but some of the stuff just is. You can, you know, data can even go in the face of something that's common sense and can lead you into the wrong answer. So I think we need to be more comfortable with those, those common sense decisions. Samaya, anything to add to that? Any way to formalize common sense? (laughs) Okay, maybe a couple of things. So I know a lot of people say, go with your gut feeling. A lot of times your gut feeling is the right thing to do. But I also believe that good PMs take the time to examine the data or the reasons behind their gut feelings. So, you know, as you're making decisions, because as as a leader yourself, you're making a decision whether to be involved in a decision or not. <laughs> so there is an element of, okay, this per- I trust this person. They've been doing this for a while. I'm going to let them run with it. I don't really get involved. And once in a while, it's good to just check, check your gut feeling. And the reason I say that is because, especially on the negative side of this, where you say, oh, I, this person has a track record of not making good decisions, you know, digging deeper and understanding why they don't and why you don't trust their decision making is 
very important to creating an inclusive and growth-minded team for you. So if you notice from my answer, I'm just focusing on tiny details of you as a leader deciding to get involved or not. And then the second one I would do for your uh, for your junior people, you don't necessarily have to always get involved with their decisions or help that uh, mentor them on everything. Pair them up with other more experienced PMs that you think have mastered something better. For example, I know there are certain PMs who are so good at data analysis, at running A-B tests, at thinking of innovative ways to experiment with stuff and getting additional data that no one else has thought about it. So pair them up with that person if that's if they're not good at that. Or if they don't trust their instinct around stuff, but you want to help them build more of that confidence, pair them with someone who does that better. So those are a couple of the tactics. All right. Thank you. I was just going to say, I love that. And I think you really touched upon, when I think about my own decision making, I often don't have a conversation with myself. I mean, as much as structuring everything and laying it out, I think it's the, the dialogue with your peers or other people to hear perspectives as you're sort of forming it up is also really helpful. And I'm glad you brought that up, Samia. All right. So we've got some agreement on stage. Now, what happens with disagreement? So Question for the panel. Again, things are rolling in online here. How do you respond when a bad decision has been made by your team? I think you touched upon this a little bit, Samea, but if we could both kind of tackle this directly, how do you respond when a what you think is a bad decision has been made by your team? I think, yeah, I mentioned earlier that I just like to ask questions and understand how we arrived at that decision and how did we arrive at that outcome. Sometimes it's actually, you know, the negative outcome or undesirable outcome has nothing to do with the decision and more to do with other external factors. Let's say another team that didn't follow through or something. So I, I just like to, to get pretty analytical about really where was the shortcoming. And then all I'm looking for in that conversation is for the person to learn from this situation. So if it's if the the shortcoming was in data that they took into consideration or people they talked to or didn't talk to, just we don't see a pattern of repeating that. A lot of times I myself will need information so I can answer to my management. So sometimes the actual outcome has so much impact that I need to answer to many levels above me. Um, and so building that narrative I say this is because sometimes the people you answer to, they, they don't care about the questions. They just care about who did this and why did they do it. And I've literally heard people say things like their head will roll. And this, is, this has nothing to do with VMR, so I just want to be clear about that. But when you hear language like that, it does not endanger trust. As long as people have done their best and done their due diligence, I think you should frame all of this into a learning experience. So this reminds me, small tangent. So we saw a a comedian, Trey Kennedy. I think that was his name. He was talking about how when he was a kid, his parents took him to the store and he found this shirt with a big rubber basketball on the front. His parents let him buy it and he went to school and got made fun of and beat up. And his parents, he was like, in the voice of his parents, he's like, I could be the bad guy now or I could be the hero later. So like, do you ever let somebody make a bad decision and learn from the market so that then you could walk them through how to fix it? And, you know, rather than them just disliking you or being the bad guy up front, like let them learn from the market? Or do you usually try to stop bad decisions before they get go underway? Either one of you. 
I have, and I'm going to protect the innocent, <laughs> you know, but yes, I have. But I don't think the impact is very big. And there's an, there's an out after we learn that we can back out or remove said choice after we learn. Samaya, <laughs> be the bad guy now or the hero later? <laughs> oh, man. I love Michelle's answer because it's so hard psychologically to basically let someone make a mistake when you sort of see it happening in real time. But the times where I find it so easy to do is when the person doing it has not been making any mistakes recently. <laughs> or I, what should I say? So when we think about the growth of people in our team, right, growth happens through positive and negative situations that happen. If everything is going exactly as you anticipate and you control every variable and the outcome is exactly what you anticipated, to me, you're not taking enough risks. You're not doing right by your responsibility as a product manager, because that much control over the outcome implies that there is so much room for you to get even more, but you're not taking that opportunity. And so every now and then there are situations where if I feel someone does not generally take enough risks, I let them make certain decisions that I know the outcome is not what they anticipated because I am interested in that learning opportunity. I want them to be less afraid of taking certain risks than they are today. And is it ever out of, I don't want to say spite, but out of like just for the sake of the relationship, instead of you being the one to use your experience to tell them where a decision's going to go wrong, that you let them have the experience? Or is it generally just altruistic, <laughs> not just selfishly for your relationship? <laughs> do, do, are you really asking us, us this on a recorded thing? No. Yeah. <laughs> there was this one person who was always <laughs> annoying. No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's funny. It's I have to say, I don't actually see people about to make a mistake that often and not step in. So it's actually rare to not step in. It's just natural. I think as managers... Someone tells us something and it's a natural reaction to be like, oh, did you think about X, Y, Z? I don't know. Michelle, do you find you're more like how often are you letting people make their own mistake? It depends on the impact, right? And I think on scenarios where I'm like, you know, somebody's really, really passionate about something and the impact isn't really big. And I feel certain nobody's ever right 100% of the time, but feel confident that that's probably not going to land in the outcome. I will go have them do it because I think... There also is an opportunity for me to learn. I think there's been a few times for sure, probably more than few, that I would say I would make that decision. But then I learned at the end of it that I had a blind spot. And so I grew from letting go a little bit on that. All right. I just want to clarify, those questions were more from the the story and the comedian. My team is amazing. Like I've got, I just want to give a quick <laughs> plug. No joking, Kara and Caitlin are like the two most amazing leaders. And I'm so proud that they've choosing to take their talents to the product management center, building a more inclusive future. So I, that was not from, I want to be very clear too, not just because Kara's listening, but because we have just an amazing staff here at the product management center. Thankfully, partially because T-Mobile invested in us and, and and allowed us to be able to hire great people. So with that, we got to get to concluding thoughts. Do one of you have the harder stop at one? Want to go first? Whoever feels like they're most urgent. Uh, concluding thoughts to leave the audience with. That was a tricky question. <laughs> Who's more important? <laughs> I am. Michelle, please go ahead. No, no, Michelle, you go, please. 
You know, I think my concluding thoughts are like, thank you. I think I personally learned a lot from this discussion, Jeff and Samaya. You, I wrote some notes down and I think you've helped me with some of the questions, probably how I can better articulate decision making, how I can better think about it, and also how as a product organization, we could be a little bit smoother on it. So this is super productive and again, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Samaya, any concluding thoughts? This was one fun conversation. Michelle, it felt like I was talking to a friend. So thank you for that. <laughs> you created yes. that atmosphere. Jeff, you made that, that um, remark about the one-way door and two-way door thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that it, it can be um, a quick answer that people give. But I really want people to sit down and think about it more. And I think I've done this analysis myself a few years ago. And I found that I was getting involved in too many two-way door decisions that I didn't need to be involved in. And so I, I invite everyone to take that time and do a retrospective analysis on the past month, for example, and just go look at your calendar and go look at some of the emails and they will help, you know, help you realize what kind of decisions you got involved in and you were very vocal about and whether actually that was needed or necessary or helpful. All right. Thank you both, Michelle. Thank you, Samea. My concluding thoughts are, you know, this is actually a very important conversation. I think this is, we touched the surface. We got some great challenges and great questions and, and got some great insights. But I encourage all of you to dive deeper into this beyond just today's conversation. And we'll probably do that as well. Because empowered decision-making is not just an important issue from a retention standpoint. It's an important issue from a happiness standpoint. It's a, an important issue from a getting to the best uh, decision-making and getting to the best future for your organization. And really, it, it's a big issue of inclusion where when there's ambiguity about how decisions are made, who gets to make decisions, and who's in the room where it happens, all sorts of people uh, start to feel uh, marginalized and they start to feel that the, the reason that they're not involved in that discussion, they start to question that. And so the more transparency, the more you can empower your team and, and, and share that knowledge and respect and power, the better your outcomes will be for the individual and for the organization. So thank you, Michelle and Samaya, for giving a lot of food for thought and a lot of great tips for how people can do that. And uh, we'll be here next week for a discussion on blockchain product management. So join us next week. And again, thank you to T-Mobile for being a platinum sponsor on the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. Together, we're building a more inclusive future and so proud to do that. Take care, everybody.